0: hello and welcome to episode four
1: of people 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 like games
0: what's up what's up uh this is people like games and i'm your host solo um for those of you who are unfamiliar Um, We are a gaming and esports podcast. Uh, We're relatively new to the scene, this being our fourth episode and such. Um, But, you know, the show's slowly getting good. We've had some pretty good guests on so far. Uh, But as I was saying, being new, uh, I have to shamelessly plug uh, our social channels um, and our subscribing uh, early into the show. So if you happen to be on Twitter, uh, if that's your thing, at PeopleLikeGames, hit me up. Let's have a conversation. I'm relatively, you know, witty, and I can banter, you know, back and forth here and there. I can meme now and then. But, you know, always depends on, uh, you know, if someone's going to mess with me or not, you know, be friendly. Um, But regardless, uh, we're also on the iTunes Store and Google Play, uh, you know. Hit the subscribe button if you like what you're hearing, and if you don't, hit the subscribe button anyway, because what did you expect me to say in that situation? Anyway, uh, if you're a returning listener, uh, I appreciate the ongoing support. Uh, And if you're a new listener, I'm going to have to give you an introduction to how the uh, show works around here. Um, in this first segment, I'm going to be going over a uh, a couple of stories that are both uh, important and interesting in the gaming industry uh, at the moment, uh, then followed by an advertisement, which is not an advertisement because we don't have a sponsor, and if there happens to be a sponsor listening, was looking for something to sponsor, hit us up. Otherwise, following said advertisement that is not an advertisement, we have our uh, second segment, um, which is a uh, time that we use to uh, study or rather analyze in depth a topic or question. Uh, that's you know either you know relevant or you know prevalent in the industry or just you know random. Whatever the case is, it's whatever just you know happens to be uh, you know interesting or important or whatever the case may be there may not even be logic to why it was chosen but this week's there is um this week uh we're going to be taking a look at the esrb uh, which is the entertainment software ratings board um i've always been curious about how it works what it was comprised of you know just basically how transparent the entire process uh of what they do is Um, And, you know, I found a few interesting things and, you know, I feel like a lot of gamers uh, should know uh, some of the entities that are, you know, or the entity rather that is behind this, Uh, you know, what the appeal process was, whatever the case is. So you'll hear it. You might find something uh, interesting uh, that, you know, that may not be useful, but is interesting nonetheless, which is useful in and of itself. Um, Anywho... In our third segment, which, you know, the second segment is also followed by an advertisement that's not an advertisement because, as I was saying, we do not have a sponsor just yet. So if you are a sponsor, same message, hit us up, particularly Nintendo, because I want to switch. Regardless, in our third segment, we usually uh, interview a guest um, from either the gaming industry or someone who is not, you know, your typical gamer, uh, but just, you know, happens to have a passion for it, uh, or happens to, you know, really be an avid gamer, and who has had video games, you know, affect their lives in a particular way. Anyway, um, now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, we can get, you know, on with the show, as they say. Uh, so, without further ado, I'm going to jump into some of these stories. Uh, first up, uh, Pokemon, which, you know, 20 years, uh, after my being a six-year-old watching it on television indoors, um, but for a reason, apparently, because it just sold, uh, or it just broke a record, uh, it has sold over 300 million copies of Pokemon games, uh, worldwide, which is sort of ridiculous, uh, it hit that number, uh, following the release of the Pokemon Ultra Sun and Moon uh, recently, uh, the last games for the 3DS. Um, and that is just such a ridiculous number if you really stop and think about it, which is, you know, over the course of 20 years, Pokemon has released 76 games, including spinoffs. Um, it's currently in the seventh generation, which is ridiculous because honestly, Pokemon sort of went... South after Sapphire, but I would still love the concept of Pokemon, but like, I, you can't give up with that many Pokemon. And I just had such a, you know, attachment to the original characters because, you know, that's what we grew, or that's, I guess, say we, I guess, that's what I grew up with. Um, Because I guess I don't know the age demographic of my listeners, because I don't do that sort of data analysis myself, because I feel like I could, uh, you know, hit a wider market, but anyway. Um, you know, the game went live in its initial version. Everyone knows the Pokemon story, like, what am I going to really tell you? But, I guess the only real story here is that it sold 300 million, and there's a rumored game that honestly pushed the Switch so far ahead of the uh, other consoles, which it's already on the path towards that, it would be ridiculous. But, that leads us to our next story, which is actually also Pokemon related, but sort of focused on a different realm, uh, in that, uh, it is the mobile version, Pokemon Go, uh, recently Pokemon Go had a global catch challenge where, uh, if the community was able to catch 3 billion Pokemon, uh, the ultra rare Japan exclusive Farfetch D would be released worldwide for 48 hours.
1: Um, but
0: even though I was saying that in a condescending tone, uh, the Pokemon Go community was able to catch 3 billion Pokemon after all in 6 days. That is ridiculous. I thought that Pokemon Go was, you know, far and away finished, but apparently it was not. Uh, it has legs. It has legs enough to be able to have 6 billion, uh, you know, or rather 3 billion Pokemon in just over 6 days, which is just... Ridiculous number, but you know, Pokemon goes forever lasting, or Pokemon rather, Pokemon's forever. Apparently, they just evolve and evolve and evolve, which I get the irony, but it also is a very interesting uh, sort of idea. Uh, anyway, on to our next story, which actually also happens to be anime related, but happens to be uh, based on a series that is a bit more contemporary. Um, Bandai Namco uh, has released or actually directed its uh, users to a website, uh, the website which led uh, people to a photo of a microwave, Uh, and if the users clicked on the microwave, uh, a smoke puff would come out and an egg would roll out. Uh, For most people, that would mean nothing, but... That is actually uh, rumored to be a teaser for a My Hero Academy game, uh, the anime, which has you know really become huge and has sort of become the next sort of, uh, I guess, you know, Bleach or Naruto in that sort of realm, you know, barring, you know, a catastrophe, I've only seen the anime, I haven't read the manga, but apparently, you know, it gets pretty good there, uh, but I'll get around to it. anyway. Uh, that is based off a reference in the show where uh, the hero All Might tells uh, Deku that, you know, for controlling his power, uh, he has to think about it uh, like an egg in a microwave to hold it just to the breaking point with uh, or rather hold it just to the breaking point. Um, it's interesting. It's funny. I hope they make a good game. Uh, if Dragon Ball Fighter Z is any indication of which way anime games are going, I'm optimistic, um, but you never know. Um, anyway, next story, uh, which is just a little funny one. Uh, for Mass Effect's 10th anniversary, uh, one of the animators, Jonathan Cooper, uh, actually shared a little funny detail on Twitter. Uh, For the close over-the-shoulder camera style that was used for the conversations in Mass Effect, he actually used for his inspiration the show Extras by Reggie rays, which is actually pretty hilarious. Um, The entire series was, you know, if you ever watched, or if you watch a lot of British television, is based off this sort of over-the-shoulder, you know, paused humor. And if you look at the way that the game uh, conversations were laid out, uh, most of your responses were set over shoulders of the characters responding so it's uh pretty awesome uh and also pretty funny to see where inspiration comes from um someone says genius he happened to just happen to be watching the extras um funny how it goes um and more 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 contemporary news that doesn't happen to be based off 10 year anniversaries um for Black Friday, um, the Nintendo Switch was the most purchased product online. Um, that's according to Adobe Digital, uh, which analyzed Black, Fri- uh, Black Friday spending. Uh, Adobe Digital tracked 55 million different products across 4,500 retail websites uh, and found it to be the number one most purchased. Uh, rounding out the top five, uh, Hatchimals was it? Hatchimals and collectibles. Uh, Then at three is PJ Masks, four is Chromecast, and five is Roku. Um, If that's any indication, there's only going to be one item at the top of every single holiday shopping list, the Switch. Um, I really hope Nintendo can meet demand. Uh, They're not going to, but I hope I get my Switch before then. So you heard me earlier, Nintendo. Hit me up. Anyway, on to our next story, Steam. Steam set a new record for concurrent users, over 17 million users online simultaneously. Uh, It breaks a record, uh, their own actually, um, which is the record they're referring to. Uh, The most they had earlier was uh, 15 million in September. Um, Pretty major milestone, but what's actually more interesting, um, which of course that's interesting, but what's more interesting is the breakdown of the numbers uh, in particular, player unknown battlegrounds pubg as always always an interesting topic but there's nearly 3 million concurrent players at one time that's that's ridiculous 3 million people playing simultaneously um just for you know reference uh dota 2's peak was just 12 mil, uh, not 12, 1.2 million um that's pretty crazy uh, it's really going to be interesting to see how big uh, the PUBG community becomes after the game is released officially uh, in December and as well as on consoles um, could be huge could be bigger than any game before it which is funny and not really funny that these times call for a game like PUBG um, is it the games that create is it the culture that creates the art or the art that reflects the culture I don't know, it's an interesting question when you look at PUBG, but I'm not the right person to answer it, nor analyze that question, so I'm just going to get on to my next story, which is the Game Awards, which relates to the story I did last week um, on Game Awards, which is uh, or Game of the Year Awards, rather. Um, the Game Awards just dropped a little teaser video on Facebook announcing that they would have about a dozen plus of world premieres for games. Uh, it's pretty interesting. I'm really curious to see what the uh, ceremony is going to be like this year. Um, the Jeff Cayley, the guy who's running it, is doing a really great job uh, with you know building it up, especially because he's seen exponential growth in the, you know, three years or this is his third year running that you know is coming up. Um, if there's to be a pres- most prestigious agreed upon gaming awards, it should be called the game awards. Um, I just hope that they are transparent about the way they're going to create the voting bodies, which is always an issue. Um, and not that gaming awards matter or not that awards matter rather. Um, but you know, it's always nice. Uh, it gives, uh, an occasion to just celebrate the industry. Uh, with a few lucky people who happen to stumble upon a nomination uh, getting just a little bit more shine. But such is life. Anywho, now on to a few more, uh, slightly not more serious, but a few more uh, informative stories. Um, Now, uh, as usual, you know, if you are in any way a gaming fan, you know that loot boxes and microtransactions are on fire uh as a story topic uh, all around even the world now you know europe is getting in on the fun um but uh in since 2012 pc microtransaction revenues have doubled so in 2012 pc free to play generated 11 billion dollars in revenue and in 2017 that number 22 billion in five years they increase it by 11 billion dollars so basically even with this battlefront 2 saga you know sort of becoming a sort of a bubbling of all of that anger or a boiling point rather um it doesn't really seem like a lot of players are responding with their wallets they still seem to be buying it's looking like the industry is you know supposed to grow about 3 billion dollars more by 2022. Um, this is all according to a super data report. Um, and so it just it, it really goes to show that unless gamers have the willingness to boycott some of these games, they're not going to be able to change what seems to be you know the almost indisputed decision of the industry, which is going to be the free to play model with pay for upgrades. Uh, certain games will just pay for cosmetic items, other ones will be uh, paid to access. So be it. What can you do? Why do I think that gaming companies would be that cynical? Simple, because of our next story, which is Bungie admits it's been slowing XP gains in Destiny 2. That is a story that you'd be like, okay, that's interesting. Go on. It gets more interesting. It took a Reddit user four days ago to create a full statistical analysis of the percentage of XP he was gaining for playing the game, and after playing the game, he found a disparity, uh, and he wrote it up in a Reddit post on the uh, difference between what he was gaining uh, in XP versus uh, basically, rather, let me hit that from the beginning, what his foundings concluded was that there was a cap on the, or a slowdown mechanism on the XP being earned, uh, so while there's no cap, they literally slow they basically uh, you know, slowed down the amount of uh, XP you could earn if you kept doing uh, repeat tasks. And so uh, Bungie, obviously, as gaming companies have been doing lately responded to the post uh, saying or rather released a, a, a statement saying that they've seen the community discussion around XP, gain and destiny and after reviewing the data, we agreed that the system is not performing the way we'd like it to. Today we'd like to describe what's going on under the hood and talk about uh, what you can expect going forward when it comes to earning XP in Destiny 2. Uh, effective immediately, we are deactivating the system. I would think that the company was not guilty or was you know conceivably making a mistake in that calculation until I realized that a statement like, we are effectively immediately deactivating the system. That means the system to limit the amount of XP that was being gamed wasn't an accidental bug. It was a built-in feature that could literally be deactivated. That same system gaming XP leads you to be able to purchase loot boxes. Those same loot boxes you could just be able to pay for instead, and if you're getting a limited, I, do you see how this works? So that this 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 is a uh, this is an issue that I I think in every in every level of seriousness deserves an investigation, much along the lines of uh, loot boxes uh, are gaining in Europe from you know Belgium, you know weighing in. It is it, just. It's it's a little ridiculous to pull a stunt like that. Um, that's I wouldn't say criminal, but it's it's something. It's something. Uh, it's something gray. Um, anyway, Tencent uh, is entering the battle royale market, um, obviously, but in two ways. Uh, it has now officially partnered. As I was saying last week, but I guess the paperwork signed now officially partnered with Bluehole to bring uh, its. Uh, PUBG over to China but uh Tencent also happened to release a new trailer for their own battle royale titled Europa uh looks interesting looks actually really awesome um looks really polished uh looks really uh you know really really awesome just uh, that's about it um basically it should be available in 2018 in china only with access to the beta almost open next month but you know if they're looking for a competition it'd be interesting but i also don't understand the concept of releasing your own uh you know battle royale game right before you partner with the company to bring in the most popular battle royale game but might well, my question uh question tencent uh which you know Gained, you know, the revenue from PC and mobile gaming in this past year was what, four point nine billion dollars. That's four point nine billion dollars. Uh, that's up forty seven point five percent from last year. Like literally, how do you how do you question a company? This company had more revenue than Activision Blizzard, EA, Take Two, and Ubisoft combined. Tencent's a monster, so if I think that Tencent, you know, choosing to release their own Battle Royale before they bring a Battle Royale in, that, you know, at the simultaneously releasing two mobile versions of that, you know, Battle Royale game as well, I don't know, I could be wrong. Anyway, um, to get towards, you know, the end of these, we got about one more, um, you know, which is sort of a, a, a funny one. Epic Games, the creator of Fortnite, is suing a 14-year-old for copyright infringement. Um, You heard that right. Uh, The 14-year-old in question was using a hack that he found uh, and was putting up a YouTube video uh, that basically promoted uh, how to use the hack and how to install it, Uh, but, you know, For some reason, Epic Games decided to use that video as a reason to file a claim in North Carolina uh, that the uh, kids' use uh, of—it's him and someone else, but their use of um, the cheating codes was a copyright infringement on their intended use, uh, and by doing that, they were uh, liable. Uh, The kid's mother— for all intents and purposes responded beautifully and interestingly uh, enough. Uh, She said that uh, Epic rely heavily uh, or the EULA agreement upon which Epic rely heavily, require parental consent for minors to play the game, which she claimed she did not give. She also points out that Epic are claiming profit loss when the game is free to play and challenges this uh, challenges them to prove this with the P&L statement showing how her son's cheating affects their bottom line. Um, on top of that, she's saying that by naming their son in public, they violated Delaware state law, which means you can't publicly name a minor. Uh, basically, even though Epic, I guess, is trying to purge out cheaters, they bid off more they can chew uh, in this situation. Um, but you know, who's to say you know, you know, they won't just drop it and just settle out of uh, you know, court. But anyway, uh, that's just a little funny story, uh, ironic uh, Fortnite. You know the, uh, you know, co. What would you say they borrowed? PUBG's g's idea and then they're suing other people for copyright infringement i just want to say that's relatively ironic but anyway um that's all for you know this portion um now you know after the ad uh you know we'll be taking a look as i said before at the esrb
1: i guess this is where an advertisement goes
0: And welcome back, following that message from our sponsors, which was in a way, just a random computer generated voice clip. Um, As I was saying in the first part of the show, this segment we're going to be focusing on the ESRB, which is the Entertainment Software Rating Board. Uh, But before I jump into that, I just want to say I had initially planned to title this segment the uh, Blue Shell in reference to the Super uh, Mario Kart 64 uh, item of the same name, where it sort of locks onto the first player, which you obviously know. But... um, it sounded too cutesy or a little bit, you know, cheesy. So if you are listening, you're like, "Hey, that's a pretty cool name." Hit me up on Twitter. Remember at people like games, um, and then I will credit you for helping me institute it and uh, overcoming my doubt about it. But anyway, on to the ESRB. Um, the reason it sort of came to mind uh, to sort of just take a, you know, a brief analysis of it and just, you know, look at a few questions I had was because, uh, a recent article, you know, came up that I saw about, uh, the ESRB implementing new regulation for digital only games that are trying to release, uh, hard copy versions. Uh, so there's two different application processes for those, one for the digital only and one for the physical releases. And, uh, by creating uh, a new regulation on that, uh, they're going to be hurting a lot of indie developers so i was just curious you know what what is esrb about it's probably the most or one of the most important uh bodies uh you know in the entire industry uh and it, it, it's worth knowing about uh, simply put so you know a couple of the questions i had come up with uh you know first being the obvious ones which were what is it and what do they do which granted although it's obvious i still think that you know there's always room for you know re you know learning you know basic information next up is what organizations or entity uh, is the esrb comprised of or you know who sits on the board the parent organizations uh next up how do they go about the ratings process for games both you know uh digital only and physical hard copies uh, following that, is there an appeals process for games that are unhappy with their rankings? Uh, that is just more of a transparency question for me as someone who's a fan of politics uh, and, and a journalism major. I think it's just sort of, you know, always important to uh, focus on the level of transparency on these sort of governing bodies. Uh, and lastly, uh, the ways in which the ESRB is adapting to digital releases and mobile games, which, you know, I'll get into as well. So, you know, video games have been a lot around since probably, you know, the late 70s, but the ESRB didn't come about until 1994. So, basically, uh, beforehand, there was a few graphic games, um, you know, or violent games, but there wasn't enough, uh, you know, graphical power for these games to really display any sort of uh, violence in a realistic way and or sexuality or sexual content, rather. And so... It wasn't until 1994, however, that the issue came about. So uh, in the early 90s, um, as you know, Mortal Kombat was released, which was another factor to lead into this story because it's the 25th anniversary. So Mortal Kombat um, and the game Night Trap uh, ended up being released within, uh, you know, a year of each other, and because of the responses by parents to the games, uh, the United States Congress, in particular two U.S. Senators, uh, Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut and Herb Cole of Wisconsin, led hearings on video game violence and corruption of society, quote unquote. Uh, So basically, their issue was the uh, level of violence uh, and the potential for sexual content would require that video games... uh, Start being regulated, uh, or start being rated appropriately, so that uh, parents and consumers would be able to differentiate on the content of games. And so, uh, initially, it was Sega and Nintendo, which were the two major players at the time. Uh, Sega had its own rating system, which called the which was called the video game rating console, um, and Nintendo had its own. Uh, in-house version of, uh, you know, editing. So, you know, when Mortal Kombat came out, for example, the uh, Nintendo Super NES decided to censor it and take away a lot of the blood, whereas the Sega version of the game ended up having everything in it, the blood, the gore, uh, the fatalities, etc. which actually ended up helping Mortal Kombat sell more copies on uh, the Sega. But... It's interesting because Mortal Kombat did to video games much uh, the same as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom did to films. So before Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out, um, there was no PG-13, but following the movie, which was too intense for kids but not violent enough for adults, they ended up uh, deciding upon the concept of the PG-13 rating. So um, who do we have to thank for the ESRB? Mortal Kombat. Anyway... Neither here nor there, and that information was thanks to Grantland, RIP, so one of the great websites of all time. But again, neither here nor there. So, as we were saying, um, once uh, Sega and Nintendo couldn't come together to create a advisory board, they ended up partnering with 3DO Company, which was creating their own age-based rating system, uh, the 3DO rating system, as well as the Recreational Software Advisory Council, which was formed for rating PC games, all got together, uh, and in February 1994, uh, after a threat by Senator Lieberman to propose the creation of a federal commission to regulate uh and read and rate video games the groups decided to come together and create the interactive digital software association in april of 1994. the goal was obviously to create a regulatory framework for assessing and rating video games Um, the issue was uh because there were two main competitors they ended up um taking that parent company and creating the entertainment software rating board inside of it so it was officially announced to Congress on July 29th of two thousand uh, of, uh, of 1994, um, and they initially proposed five based uh, age rating systems. One was early childhood, kids to adults, which was later renamed everyone, teen, mature, and adults only. Uh, and with each of these uh, ratings, there would be content descriptors that gave a, a little example of the content contained in the game. So. Now we have the development and the establishment of the ESRB. So the question then becomes, you know, what orgs or entities are they comprised of? So the uh, Digital or was it the Interactive Digital Software Association, which was formed uh, to create the enter, uh, which was formed to create the ESRB actually changed its name in uh, 2003 to the Electronic Software Association. A company you might be familiar with if you happen to tune into E3 every year because they happen to organize and host it. Uh, And so among between the initial uh, gamers, or rather the initial gaming companies uh, and advisory boards, uh, and now under the ESA, uh, a video game rating system had been created. So... Overall, I don't really have a lot of beef with the way the ESRB, you know, works. However, you know, there's not a lot of games that pop out, you know, to me other than Halo that was, you know, mis-rated uh, just because it was, there was nothing mature about Halo. It would have been fine with teen, uh, and eventually by Halo 5, they ended up getting that rating, which I also think had partial, you know, a lot to do with how much Microsoft had writing on the game following Bungie's exit after 4, but that conflict of interest will be forever unknown because you can't find information about it. Anyway, 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 anyway. So, now on to the ratings process. So, that is a part of this whole concept that I find very interesting. So, um for the games that are uh rated, um they're This is such a weird concept. So ESRB ratings are based on the consensus of at least three specially trained raters who collectively deliberate about what rating should be assigned to the game. Uh, All ESRB raters are adults who typically have experience with children, uh, whether through prior work experience, education, or parents as caregivers. Um, But specifically, they're not required to have advanced skills as video game players. Um, and they often don't even have to play the game, uh, which I think is is a little ridiculous uh because you know their argument is that uh, they don't have to play the games that they rate for a variety of reasons. Uh, first, many get upwards of 50 hours, this is according to their website, 50 hours of gameplay so requiring a minimum of three raters to play through each of the more than 1,000 games rated annually by the ESRB would be inefficient given the high degree of repetition in video games, which is fine. Um, but it also creates the question of if you're required to uh, apply you have to apply with uh, the in, the information that you have to apply with to get an ESRB rating is a uh, descriptor of, uh, you know, some of the content that would be in the game uh, or the most uh, extreme content in the game uh, from, you know, rating that are relevant to rating criteria, such as violence, language, sexuality, gambling, alcohol, tobacco, etc. Um, that in includes a video that includes the worst elements of the game for the uh, Raiders to be able to see and to make their decision, uh, even within the game's context, which is setting storyline objectives. Um, That, again, just seems ridiculous, that the ability for um, three people to create the definitive rating on what is an inherently subjective experience uh, is likely to create a lot of issues. They haven't been terrible thus far. So all in all, don't have a lot of, you know, qualms that can specifically pick with them. Uh, I would say, as I was saying, for what is the appeal process? So for the companies that don't happen to like uh, the um, rating they're given, they have the ability to uh, reapply using a uh, edited version, and also expl- also an explanation of what has changed in the game that would justify a lower rating. Um, again, that seems a little unfair that they have to cut out a lot of the games rather than being able to, or you know, cut out any portion of the game before they're able to apply. Uh, for an appeal rather than being able to first question the validity of the uh, rating uh, based off the initial content that was submitted but again that's neither here nor there and there's not much to be done about that um, you know and lastly I guess this is where it comes down to which is adopting uh, you know digital practices or uh, you know in mobile, Uh, for adopting or adapting rather to mobile and digital releases uh so i guess in april of 2011 uh the esrb officially uh created uh something called the short form which is a streamlined process for assigning ratings for uh console downloadable games which is more you know accurately described as a, a digital download uh as well as for mobile games so Uh, Rather than having to rate each of the products, um, it was just a series of multiple choice questions, um, you know, that allows uh, a computer algorithm to automatically, uh, you know, rate the game via this process, which seems a little bit, um, you know, loose in terms of allowing digital Content to be out, but you know, they did just recently amend this, which is what I was mentioning uh, in the beginning, which is uh, in this past August, the ESRB implemented new rules on Sony games. So basically, uh, any product that underwent the short form review to be able to be on the PlayStation Store as a digital only download. Where it want to go and uh, create physical hard copies to sell in stores would require uh, the uh, a secondary application, which is known as a long form review process for games uh, that are normally uh, or which is a normal process for games that are getting physical release copies. So that uh, is a tiered process with the amount of the application cost being relative to the total development cost of the game. Interesting concept, but. Um, This decision really hurt a lot of these boutique indie developers, um, who, while they were able to make some good money with the digital versions, had to, you know, pull. you know, some plans for releasing hard copies because there's no way a lot of these games would be able to go through and receive the same rating uh, for a physical release copy versus a digital release copy, which also begs the question as to uh, why there is a differentiation in the way that uh, some of these games are rated. Um, You know, through, you know, I I don't know any cases where the ESRB has gone back and revised uh, that, you know, their decision, In a way that has been, you know, controversial, except for one, if you follow, you know, in 2005, uh, if you are a fan of Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, there was a short version or the short version story uh, hackers found a sex scene minigame buried in the game's code that was accessible via modding basically the ESRB went back changed the game's rating from mature to adults only and Rockstar paid a 20 million dollar settlement after the fact um it is interesting and it does also uh, create the question as to whether un you know intended content that was built into the game's code and then access illegally i don't want to say illegally uh access without you know the permission of the, you know, publisher or of the game, um, and then is able to access that content, should Rockstar be, you know, liable for that? They hid the code. It's not like that made it an accessible portion of the game. And if you happen to be able to mod, you know, this goes back into the Epic Games thing I was talking about as well, which is, I I don't think Rockstar really bore the brunt of, of this decision or of this punishment, but, uh, or deserve to bear the brunt of the punishment. But, you know, I'm sure that, you know, getting away with what they do simply by being, you know, considered a mature rated game is in their best interest. So they just didn't fight it and they paid it. Um, In the future, Obviously, you know that was that's about the you know the main gist of how this uh, company or how this uh, board works. Um, an interesting or the most interesting topic, and this is what I had mentioned uh, in, in initially, which is the fact that none of this are none of these are federal laws. So um, this isn't federally mandated to require the ESRB to rate games or to even abide by the rating of the game. So. If a game comes out, say, Grand Theft Auto 6, for example, and the ESRB says, we want it to be adult only, and, you know, Grand Theft Auto is like, actually, screw you. I'm just going to, you know, release the game ourselves without your help. Is that technically illegal? Should they be allowed to be fined? I want to say technically no. uh, Because they have, you know, the ability to enforce these penalties, I'm going to assume that um, every single game that's released is... Uh, from a publisher that has signed uh, an agreement with the ESRB, but simultaneously, or I guess you have to have the ESRB not of approval to be able to be console released. I still just don't get that if they said no and it's not you know federally mandated law, then what the actual legal recourse would be in this case? Um, you know, in terms of self governing regulating bodies, uh, the you know ESRB has been pretty wonderful. Uh, it's not. You know particularly corrupt there's not a lot of situations that you know a lot of people you know get up in arms about that could change with the way that uh the esrb has been backing loot boxes which again conflict of interest which it makes uh it makes for very little surprise that you know companies you know that have uh a lot of publishers you know making up their existence like for example. The ESA, which is the Entertainment Software Association, which, as I said, established the ESRB, uh, is made up of members from Capcom, Electronic Arts, Konami, Microsoft, Bandai Namco, Nintendo, Sony Interactive, Square Enix, Take-Two, Ubisoft, Warner Brothers. So if all of these games uh, or all of these game publishers Um, are, you know, within this company, you know, or within, or in charge rather of this, uh, ratings board, you know, probably not directly, but indirectly, I'm sure they have more than enough sway. It would make sense that the ESRB would come out, you know, in support of loot boxes, or at least would come out with a qualified statement as to why they don't think it's gambling because, you know, they have their own interests to look out for, which is the interest of the industry, which is the interest of the publishers. Um, You know, not really the gamers. You guys just happen to be a, uh, you know, piece of the pie. But anyway, um, not very interesting, I guess, to most people. But, you know, I thought it was worth looking at, Um, you know, worth asking a few questions. Um, Hopefully for next week, we'll have a little bit more of a in-depth look at some of these things uh or you know if you're like hey i sort of prefer the ability to just sort of listen in a relaxed way to you know a brief analysis of a topic you know let me know again you know this is open the form is changing on the show uh this wouldn't you know or this won't rather be the last uh, iteration of what this segment may become but you know if you like it let me know and if you don't also let me know because you know Uh, You know, criticism is sometimes necessary for growth and, you know, sometimes, you know, compliments are necessary for uh, endurance. Anyway, um, coming up, uh, we have a interview with uh, Scott Nowers, who is the CEO of Waypoint Media, uh, which is a data analytics company focused on esports. We have a pretty interesting conversation uh, on the importance of data in gaming, uh, or data in the uh, eSports industry, so, uh, you know, coming up right after this message, uh, we'll get right to it.
1: I guess this is where a second advertisement goes.
0: (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Uh, Can you hear me alright? Thank you, you know, first off, for taking the time to, you know, uh, have a little conversation for the show. I know you got a, a busy week uh, ahead of you, but, you know, I'll, uh, I'll keep it short and sort of concise so, you know, we can get a, a smooth conversation going. Um, uh, how's your Thanksgiving? Everything go well? Enjoy yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, I'm, I had two Thanksgivings. I'm originally from Canada. We have an earlier Canadian Thanksgiving, so the
1: American one
0: Nice, nice. I did not know uh, that Canada had its own Thanksgiving. When is that one? Third week of? October. Oh, October. Interesting. I only recently learned about Boxer Day, so, you know, I'm getting around to it. I'm getting around to it. Um so, off the bat, um, I want to introduce you to the uh, listeners of the show. Um, this is Scott Dowers. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly in the last name, yeah. but he is the CEO of uh, Waypoint Media, which is a uh, data analytics company that focuses on esports. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit uh, about what it is that you do.
1: Sure. Uh, so. Uh, as I I grew up in Canada, specifically in Toronto. Um, for those of you who've uh, sort of looked into the, the early ideography of uh, you know esports, um, Toronto was sort of the center of a lot of the growth of North American uh, esports, going all the way back to games like Doom and Quake. Um, early, early, groups like the Dino Clan, uh, Rocky Minos, um, some tournaments with prize pools of ten, you know, fifteen dollars or a video card. Uh, We're taking place in Toronto. um,
0: Never ball because it always got stuck. kid would end up, you know, owning a company, you know, working in gaming uh, because, you know, to be frankly honest, when you're growing up, you know, did you think, um, you know, as you're hitting all of these events and these scenes in the sort of uh, early, you know, years of competitive gaming that you would uh, or that you would see it sort of grow and establish uh, in the way that it has. And I guess I want to say the past five years, uh, but even more specifically, I guess it's only become more professionalized in the last two years.
1: Out in the industry, um, I certainly knew that it was going to grow to far beyond a, a hobby. And it, like, to give you a sense of like how, uh, you know, one of, one of the early competitive games that sort of faded into memory, uh, but that was really, really important when it came out, uh, was Painkiller.
0: Remember that game? No, I do not. So, Painkiller was basically designed from the ground up to be a highly competitive first-person shooter deathmatch style game. Um, there were things that were deliberately left in, like physics used to allow people to move through
1: the game as quickly as possible. Um, the equivalent of the railgun had an arc to it, so, um, you know, really incredible shots that were made from across the map were just like the, the most phenomenal, like, you know, demonstrations of skills. Um, and it was the first time ever that a million dollar purse was meted out to a, an esports tournament. And that was, I believe, in 2003. Um, and at the time, the competition was between uh, Fnatic, who obviously are still a major esports franchise, and a no-namer named uh V00, uh, in the finals. And there are a couple of videos still floating around for this one on one, but this guy was like the Bobby Fisher of first person shooters. He just kind of came out of nowhere uh, with no uh, team affiliation and ended up winning because it
0: different from the scene. Oh,
1: wow. Um, yeah.
0: They got to make a documentary on this guy. You ever see you searching really for question.
1: There's, there's so many great stories that came out of the early like three-wheeling days of eSports, but I think a key thing to remember when we, just in the context of the current um, growth of eSports is that, you know, as, as, as long as, you know, well, as long as it is a very relative statement, um, but, you know, in the, in the, in the early 2000s, people were, had worldwide tournaments right? World Cyber Games was happening. Um, million dollar purses were happening. Like esports has a long history of, and of professionalism in the in the sense of the amount of money that was being paid out and the sort of veneer of like we have franchises or organizations that hold all of this together.
0: I guess it, it, in terms of professionalization, what I mean is the entry of big money and professional sports franchises because i'll be frankly honest which is going to be the next question i'm going to pivot to which is um you know if you've already seen that you know there was you know a a professionalization underlying you know the pro amateur gaming scene in its early years um and you know now it's moving into this uh, next phase. Did you think uh and or are you surprised or rather even just comment on it, what do you think about um, you know, esports, Overwatch League and, and League of Legends in particular taking on uh you know non-endemic uh you know sports franchise money and allowing in uh, these companies uh, to help establish leagues that are going to reflect and mirror sports leagues. I never really thought that um, you know, like with Overwatch League, a city-based league uh, would make a lot of sense for gaming. Uh, you know, so what do you think? Do you think these are, go- are successful outgrowths or do you think that uh, these happen to be the first people with a lot of money uh, and they're the first ones to throw it at it and that doesn't necessarily mean it was a right uh, money play? Um, so, what I didn't know growing up Cause like I when I did graduate from college I started actually uh, my first business uh, that I ran through college with a fashion company I started to get a sense of uh, a couple things that um, I didn't know before. One
1: was the intermingling of uh, things like street uh, culture with video games. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very very intertwined, um, and intertwined and. The, there's sort of a broader cultural shift that is, in many ways, fueling the economics of the investment of, of outside money that's beyond just like this is an innovative opportunity, and that's the fleeing of uh, young people, particularly millennials, um, away from traditional distribution uh, channels, uh, particularly linear television. Okay.
0: So they're trying to understand the nature of consumption among this generation, uh, or uh, among this age group, rather?
1: or with things like arena teams, WNBA, or now eSports. So in many ways, the, you can view the, the, the creation of a lot of these new leagues and the investment of certain elements of the money when it comes to traditional sports franchises as how do we continue to capture new generations of
0: viewers into the sphere of our uh, you know audience that we can monetize. I think, yes, that makes a lot of sense, which is actually very interesting. It's going to segue into what you guys do over at Waypoint, but um, beginning, um, that's actually a very, very interesting point because um, I've also thought about that, which is the uh, increased viewership in the NBA um, over the past couple of years and its sort of expansive growth sort of mirrors um, you know, the way that esports is growing and I think it's funny that it's not the NFL or the MLB that is going into or that is putting major money into these you know, not mentioning uh, you know, MLB BAM Tech which is just a different story but um, in terms of actually putting money up for teams and leagues uh, it's usually so far has been uh, you know, international football which we're just going to call soccer um, for, you know, American audiences and basketball. Um, and then seeing how that, you know, uh, like you said, with fashion crosses over with, uh, streetwear, um, and the way that that also segments with a youth culture, um, it does make a lot of sense that they see a way to, you know, put their brand imprint on these things. So then, you know, because, you know, like you were just saying, uh, television or, you know, viewers no longer watch television in this sort of, uh, you know, precise, you know, measurable way, you know, when you start getting into esports and now this is what your company does, you know, you guys work in data, you know, what is some of the data that goes into esports? Um, you know, from the viewing to the audience? Is it game time you're measuring? Is it, you know, so if I'm watching television, you're usually just looking to see that, hey, you got X amount of viewers and X breakdown of demographics. And they're going to sell that to whoever's, you know, willing to buy an ad in a time slot. So with the, you know, information you're measuring... You know what? What what's the goal of that information? How can it be used? You know how can it be monetized? Like what is uh, the value uh, of that information? Especially in light of television, you know, sort of breaking down as a main uh, viewing segment. Yeah. Um, so I, I would caveat what we
1: do um, with you know, there's a lot of different um, important measurements of how you can gauge the, the success of both esports and gaming overall. Um, and most major analysts in this space, and I think one of the earliest, were uh, a lot of the editorial staff that, that gave the industry did, um, tried Great to website. Actually, yeah, they, they tried, their, uh, their editor actually published the fact that um, game studios really don't expose this information, right? Samway Netflix doesn't expose yours. Mm-hmm. What, we do know, what we do know is that
0: gaming is the biggest entertainment media of Yes, that I agree with. So, so that's a cool fact. But, like, how do you unpack that? And how do you actually tie, like, the monstrous viewership
1: associated with game like League of Legends with its actual level of monetization? Um, because hence, that, like, there's is also sort of opaque about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Agreed. And what we do as a business.
1: Facebook competing? Uh, advantage, uh, like a strong advantage, almost by virtue of the fact that they've engaged with the community for as long as they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that they, you know, the, the pie is growing in a way that everyone can come out on top. It just does mean that if I'm going to look at a platform like Facebook uh, and Twitter, I need to see um, them taking steps that strongly indicate that they are going to create a means of consuming content that is focused uh, or at least moves towards uh, the
0: paradigms that is established by Twitch. I, I, I very much uh, agree agree with everything you just said there. I think that too often, um, or a, at least in, in the current uh, environment, uh, social media platforms are trying to uh, pivot um, as quickly as they can into uh, features and uh you know, industries that they were not initially built for, and like you said, in you know, specifically Twitch has a, a very interesting way, and it's actually built for, you know, watching eSports and for, you know, interacting with all of this, you know, content and the streamers and the community, whereas Facebook has always, was never intended for that, so to add that on as a feature, likely not going to be as a, a significant difference for them as they would believe. Um, so then, you know, with all of this data now that you've been in, uh, you know, the industry for a couple of years and you've you know, known the industry for a lot more years, you know, what, what, what do you see really happening, uh, you know, moving forward? And then after this, I got one, two quick questions for you. Uh, not related, but, you know, based on the data that, you know, um, you know, what do you see happening? You know, what, what's some trends to be looking for? Uh, you know, do you think the Overwatch League will be successful in the first year? Like, you know, lay out the, you know, the next year, uh, or what you believe. So here's the biggest
1: misconception about uh, viewership in, and content consumption on Twitch and YouTube that really needs to be emphasized. The, the The vast majority of content that's consumed from the partnered group, which represent the lion's share of content consumption on all of Twitch is not from competitive gaming. It's from casual gamers who are entertainers, mm-hmm. right, you know, influencer networks. These guys are producing content at an absolutely staggering volume. Um, there's no question
0: that when Dota is out that they're going to get viewership that I mean, far exceeds what you would see someone like, you know, someone once you get full mm-hmm. well, Someone like Dr. Disrespect is the future.
1: Yeah, well, it's not that there's a future so much as you, just like if I'm thinking about, you know, as an advertiser or just someone who's interested in, in the numbers, um, purely from uh, what the, the commonly accepted metric is a fewer which is hours stream times the concurrence uh, of the time, right? So mm-hmm. you're looking at.
0: networks that are present uh, on those platforms, because frankly, it will just, you'll
1: Um, as games add uh, things like more sophisticated spectator modes, I think one of the best things that Blizzard has done... um, Revamped. Yeah, the new patch that they released where they added a sophisticated spectator mode, uh, new integrated bracket system, um, things that the community has said, like, you know, we we need this to grow organic viewership uh, on Twitch, it's very know, true. They and they responded to it. Like
0: yeah. It was a great
1: decision on their
0: part, and I applaud them for it. Absolutely, because you know I, I thought about that much, in you know when I watch League of Legends, where one of the biggest things is with the sport, depending on the speed of the action. If you're commentating, or if you're a viewer and you're not familiar with the product, um, you're not going to understand what's happening in League of Legends. It's just. Impossible, Just too much going on at once. But uh, I thought I the same would have happened with Overwatch, you know, being a big fan of the game. But, you know, catching the Overwatch, uh, you know, World Cup at, you know, BlizzCon, I realized that with the new spectator mode that, you know, it, it was pretty, you know, pretty easy to follow all along. I think it really, as you're saying, you know, deserves a lot of applause. Uh, really help them, um, and it's something that you know. I hope uh, you know PUBG will take note of as it's trying to you know pivot into the uh, you know esports world as well. Um, because of course they have the viewership numbers, but I still you know there's certain games uh, that I'm never sure about. Um, but you never know. So here I'm going to finish you up with three quick questions, four actually, um, if I can remember the fourth one. Um, but Favorite game, or top three games. Personal favorites, uh, not even objective bests. Uh the Lost of Us. Nice. Um, I definitely say yeah, the Lost of Us is out
1: there. Um, I'm right now. I'm in the in the, in the thralls of Persona, so like maybe a little heavy on RPGs.
0: Interesting. Is it good? Persona Five. Yeah. Uh, Interesting, because I saw I it get nominated for a few places. wasn't sure because I'm not a PS player. Um, and the last game, um, I would say the Masterpiece series, uh,
1: and some maybe controversial.
0: degree as a fan of Bioshock. agree with that it, it, it sort of um, it, it becomes its own sandbox um, without the developers having realized they gave it the capability to be so um, which is always amazing to see um, favorite console? Like yeah, I, like yeah I, I would agree with that I would totally agree with that and um, you know moving forward hopefully they, they capitalize on it I'm, I'm just so slightly worried that the uh, big influx of money is going to Uh, hurt it slightly because the people who are putting the money in are going to expect those returns uh, at a rate that could potentially be quicker than what um, is viable and there could be a bubble but that is another story for another day Um, favorite console Um, it's the Xbox for me I gotta be a Halo guy so you know
1: the Xbox was pretty incredible. Um I can't believe I'm spacing on this, but
0: uh there was a with the first network enabled console. Second like Saturn or Dreamcast? It wasn't
1: uh, it wasn't a Saturn.
0: I think it was the Dreamcast. Yeah, it
1: was the Dreamcast. Yeah. So the Dreamcast I think was like one of those classics you know, way ahead of its time. People were like looking at the Ethernet jam being like what?
0: Yep. hundred you know, percent. One of my favorite games oh, of all time was released on there. Marvel uh, vs. Capcom Two. Oh uh, you Are right, you your, your champ. Um yes and no. I played Marvel vs. Capcom two. I didn't like three. I don't like Infinite. Um I'm excited about Dragon Ball Fighter Z. I like two D fighters. Um they just seem yeah. more interesting, they have better mechanics. Um, I'm hoping that you know. I don't like injustice. I don't like the Mortal Kombat games. I feel like those three D fighters are a bit simplistic uh, in terms of their movement versus the arcade style fighting in two D games, which I just enjoy more.
1: Like, this, like Guilty Gear Double X. I was on I put hours and hours an of hour Guilty Gear.
0: Yep. I'm a button masher. Gear was,
1: yeah, that game was so fun. So fun. Um, like that. Yeah, and like King of Fighters, like. I love the time anime for King of Fighters, too. Exactly. It was just, it was, it was just like, a series of trailers for what was going to be the King of Fighters anime, and, uh, like, every single one was just a badass, like, ridiculous scene where Yori would just crush
0: a bunch of people. <laughs> um, and I was like,
1: wow, this anime is going to be great, and it never
0: came out. Of course. It was, it was so frustrating. Of course. Uh, it, I used to think, I was just thinking about that the other day. I was like, you remember when they used to release video games um, whenever... Uh, a movie was coming out they don't do video game tie-ins with films anymore um, because they probably don't have rental revenue coming in from their local blockbuster which is also another conversation to be had for another day Um, that that, that
1: conversation always is going to start with the Chronicles of Riddick
0: oh absolutely that's an absolute truth that was a
1: watershed moment in video games
0: Hundred percent. Sure. And then, lastly, one question I'm very curious about. You may not have the time. You could just do a quick one-minute answer on this. Why did CS:GO become big and not Halo? Uh, in competitive scenes. actually really profound um, with the mods and the infinite curves on skill sets um, really things I actually never thought about um, that's, actually a great, that's a great answer that's actually a perfect answer um, alright well shit uh, you know, I've already taken 30 minutes of your time um, appreciate you coming on the show again uh, this was a great conversation um, and I'll uh, I'll be sure to send you over the episode once we uh, we have it up on air alright thanks again Scott have a good one